This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. Teacher Education Institute based out of Southern Vermont. You can find us at Indigo Radio on Instagram and Facebook or download a previous show on SoundCloud and Apple iTunes. Indigo is based now out of Southern Vermont, Western Mass, Atlanta, Georgia, where I currently am, and Seattle and Morocco. That song you just listened to was by the Drive-By Truckers with the song, What It Means. This was a song originally written for Trayvon Martin who was shot down by George Zimmerman in 2012. Actually, the anniversary of that is coming up. It was February 26, 2012. Trayvon would have turned 29 on February 5th. Today's show airs part two of an interview with Dr. Aliasa Ali Sul. They are an associate professor of sociology at Emory and also the director and founder of the Race and Policing Project. Part two of my interview with Dr. Sewell touches on Cop City, their research on policing and adverse health effects, Atlanta and race, teaching, and what gives them hope. You can find part one of this interview on Apple iTunes and, and SoundCloud at Indigo Radio. A big thanks to Dr. Sewell for giving so much of their time to sit down. I learned so much about Atlanta and race and health sitting with them. Who do you think Cop City is going to affect most in detrimental ways? Because you do a lot around policing and health. Mm. And also, I guess, do you see it as a bigger national issue? Do we need to be thinking about it like that? What do you think about it? It's, it's always hard for me to think about whether my understanding of policing, stop pushing for police violence, actually works down here. Because we don't have streets. Mm. Very few people walk on streets. People drive. Mm -hmm. And we have so many jurisdictional police forces that even getting the data to actually identify this stuff would be very difficult. The best data you would have, which speaks to the problem, is the highway patrol. And they're, they're, there's a Georgia Highway Patrol, but really, Highway Patrol, but really, that's a federal question, right? Because they're going to be dealing with interstate uh, traffic and so on and so forth. 
So my research suggests that if you're in an area where there's lots of stops and, and, and questions, so we call them the frisk, they, they bring you out. It's not just the stop. The stop actually doesn't matter. It's the frisking mm -hmm. that matters. It's the, I am not just going to stop you. I actually know that you're a problem. Let me verify the pat down. Um, there is higher likelihood of both uh, psychological distress and vulnerable health conditions from asthma episodes within the last year to high blood pressure, diabetes. You have higher risk of obesity and even being overweight, just generally of thinking that your, your health is really bad, which is an indicator of early mortality, right? That's a global indicator of early mortality. People, uh, boys, men, boys who come men, they feel like they're more worthless, um, they're nervous, everything takes a lot of effort, it's, it's like really hard. One of the more surprising things that have come out in research, and I think this is one of the things that we're going to deal with here. So while the stop question and frisk thing, I question whether there is a direct corollary to here from pedestrian stops. I think there will be a corollary for drivers and for, for uh, vehicular stops. Um, some of the data that I've done in Philadelphia, we have the data on vehicular stops. We don't use it um, in the study that we published uh, with uh, Aaron Carrison because you want that comparison to New York City, which they don't have any data on, in, at least in the police support, they don't have any data on vehicular stops. I believe that there is going to be a relationship between legal intervention deaths. So police, when they kill, it is no uncertainty. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt, a doctor says this, a medical examiner coroner says, if not but for the intervention of the police during the action of duty, right? So not they're not on their personal time. They may be playing clothes, but they're enforcing the law. Those individuals, if you live in a community where there were, if this is in New York City, um, New York City, this is 10 years before uh, the 10 years before stop question frisk was deemed unconstitutional, at least its implementation, um, you see it in those areas that more than three deaths, not one a year, <laughs> three, over 10 years, individuals had higher risk of obesity, diabetes, okay, high blood pressure. Those risks were higher for women. I think about it like carceral grief. They're not dying from the police. They're dying from broken hearts. So we do know there are incidents of this. Uh, Renelia Randall um, was uh, the mother of someone. They, now, they did not die, right? They did not die in prison, but when they left, they died, right? And I'm going to get my names incorrect, so I'm just letting it be on that. Can I just pause you one second there? I'm just, that's a, the carcel of grief that you just said. Are you also talking about, because you just said mothers, so are you also saying there's health effects, they may not have direct, but maybe they had a son or a daughter or husband or family member, and then they're having health effects? Or someone in the neighborhood. Okay. This, well, I say carceral grief, but it, it would be incarceration. That, there is research on um, people who have been incarcerated and their effects on family members, yeah. on caregivers, on 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 siblings, right, or yeah. uh, children. There's, there's a good amount of research on that. Yeah. And the effects are strong and, and consistent and ver reverberating, right? Uh, this is not so much about, in my mind, my research is not so, about, so much about whether you have interaction, but it's whether people around you do. So, is the, I mean, there are huge areas, community health areas of New York City, there's only 34 of them. They, each of them on average contain about five or six zip codes. Then from there, you know, there's so many census tracts. Are they real neighborhoods? No. They're communities, right. In that community, you have three of them, down the hole you go. If you're a woman compared to a man in that neighborhood, you have the trifecta, that's the obesity, that's the diabetes, that's high blood pressure. That's a heart attack. And there are instances, there is a paper I wrote, you, it's the collateral consequences of state-sanctioned violence for women. Yeah, I think I was looking at that because that was yeah. interesting. I, I was looking at something around women that you had done. We did a paper, you should read this one, it's in city, you should read this paper, in city and community um, called 
policing the block, systemic racism, and the blood of America is super. Okay. Yeah. You should read that because yeah. that's that's the narrative. Okay. And that narrative covers everything. That covers all of. It puts into a kind of a creative nonfiction mm. uh, language the actual statistics behind this, oh, including nice. stuff on incarceration. But the reason I you start with carceral grief is because listen, they were inflicting pain on people that they were not involved with. This is mass incarceration. Mass incarceration, yes, one is about the number of people who are going in the system, but it's also about the number of people who are caught up in the system because everybody's going into the system. Yeah. And what's more likely to be left behind in that system are women. Mm -hmm. It's children, but it's more so women. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you have broken homes, right? You have uh, loss of family ties. Um, you have uh, more like being more likely to trust someone who is incarcerated, and that actually being a bad thing. So, what do you, what do you think needs to happen? If, if you think about like the history of police brutality and thinking about mass incarceration, both historically and then, of course, like the the recent, more I feel like recent with the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. and George Floyd, all this stuff. Yeah. Where do you think both like academics and activists need to put energy? Um, a lot of the problems around this question are political. Mm. And the minute you say something about policing, we either know you're on the left or the right. You're never in the middle though. This is what I state in the city and community piece. The minute you say the blood of America, policing is the blood of America. The, I, you gotta, you have an actual opinion about policing, about blood, and about America. Now you can switch it up how you want to. That's going to indicate how you see it, what your what your position is on that. It is going to be very difficult for professors, for teachers, for educators to have a conversation around policing and health in the United States without showing very clearly what their political ideology is. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. Either you're empathetic, you're not, either you're passive, you're not even a pacifist ever. Have you ever been stopped by the police? That's the end of the answer. You say that, you already know what's up. If you say no, I'm like, mm, you probably don't really understand, do you? Because you ain't never had it done to you. Well, yeah, but a long time ago, it was bad, ain't it? You don't want that to again. All the time, I'm so sorry. You probably did something wrong. You in jail? You did something wrong. Like there's already, based off of what that contact ended with the police, their assumption about one's worthiness, one's belonging to society is immediately questioned. So if you bring it into the classroom, you have no choice but to bring up the culpability of the person in front of you. Most of these kids in Emory have not had police contact. They are using information that they're getting from activists, from their professors, from ed educators in public about what policing is. They ain't never been stopped by the police though. So this is another reason why as an activist, you are going to have to be responsible for not your life, for not the person you're looking at. You are actually gonna be, you, have, you do have a longer, my, in my opinion, impact hand, okay, on the future of society because you're telling the story of it. So if only certain people are telling the story, then that's the story you're going to get. And the problem is my story doesn't matter that much. I'm not in City Hall. I'm not the one that was stated um, in a panel recently that there were hours and hours of testimony and statements from residents and all kinds of folks, and in like two hours, they came back and said, "We're getting funding for City Hall." What did those What did those hours of testimony even mean? I'm not in a position of power, but what I would hope is that as educators, if we actually tell people about these things now, that when they become City Hall, <laughs> you know, people when they become agents of change, that they do the thing that allows people to live. Because Cop City is going to have an effect. You're right. I believe this. I know it's true. It's going to, I, people don't think it's, it's counterintuitive. It's going to increase the uh, value of the homes around it. 
is going to allow whites to feel safer and safer to go deeper and deeper into the cab county. It is going to, through that, displace working class communities over there. Listen, me and Boulder Crest Road, and pilot, my sister worked at Pilot. There's a Wendy's there. I always got my two ninety nine mill, it, but with the with the taxes was three oh six. I know it. So there are apartment concept, comp, complexes all over there. They're going down. They're going to they're going to be good out. No big deal. And the extent to which it goes further and further south, maybe that's another generation. Because if you go further, further south, and you're going west, you're at the airport. People don't necessarily want to live that very close to the airport, but in, for instance, Austin, Texas, they took that land too. They want to be in the city. They want to be in the perimeter. That's the big difference. The big difference right now is inside, outside the perimeter. And most of the black community that we're talking about right now, the ones that are working class, they're actually outside the perimeter. The ones that are really poor, they're inside the perimeter. So they're your Lakewood Amphitheater, mm -hmm. South Atlanta communities, whereas the ones that are working class and, you know, two middle, but they're going to go graduate into middle class, um, that's in DeKalb County. DeKalb County has always been perceived as more affluent than Fulton County, especially okay. south of, 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 you know, anything south of, of, of Decatur. But in city of Decatur, be, let me be clear. But I, I think we have to expose people to these stories earlier. I don't know the extent to which this is something that could happen somewhere else. I know it can. If it can get through Atlanta, it can get through anywhere. Number one, we have a very diverse political ideology. This is where you this is where the fights happen. You know, people duke it out right here. If anything, we can see this in the 2020 election what happened. Georgia came down, we were the end of it for, for Biden. Congratulations. And I I guarantee you, if people pay attention to the transfer of money of people over the last four years, people are coming to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And it's liberals that are coming to Atlanta. It's whites that are coming to Atlanta because they see this and it is a place of change. You can change simply by building up. You get more people within the square footage, you, you're good. You got, you know, I don't need to build a house. I just build a nice complex, you know. I can't believe how many complexes are being built. Yeah. Like when I drive around. Yep. Whoa, there's another one. And they look so expensive. Yeah, and they are. It's not a look, they are. And people are just, people are buying them. People are, people are renting them because they're close. They're easy to access to work. I'm not going to lie. I'm like, it's 13 minutes is better than 30 any day. <laughs> yeah. You know, I got my playlist done and a playlist, like, you know, somebody, someone told me, I was like, how do you live out so far? It's like, I have a playlist for 45 minutes. I'm like, no, 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 no. Right. I can drive around and hear the same song twice and I'm already going to sleep. Um, but the point is, that's not something that you can change. Me and you are not going to change that because that's about business. That's about disinvestment. That's now investment. These are places that were not invested in before. And now money is on the table and politics is on the table and people are coming. So I might suggest if I had to put myself in a box that that area is going to have an increase in commercial and, and apartment level. They are building out a lot of that housing structure, but they're not splitting the land like they, they were doing in the city of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. and I haven't seen it. It's really, I love it down there because you can still get the same kind of house and, you know, you can build it in, build it out however you want to. But DeKalb County, in my mind, is a culprit. Mm -hmm. You let the city of Atlanta that is incorporated come up into your neighborhood in your county line and put in cops that, frankly, mostly don't, they don't police Atlanta. The Atlanta police cover up, what, 10% of DeKalb County? Not even. So you let the Atlanta police come in here in a private foundation and take your land and take your worth. Take all them tax dollars that you could have got. You let them do that. That's on you. But the reality is that the, the leading, the leaders of the Cab County government are black. This is a, it is a racial issue. But Atlanta has always had that politic of race being a prism. You can look at it one way and when it come out, it's like five different ways. And depending upon where you go and how you look on the other side is what you think is culpable on this side. On this side is crime that's culpable, bring the cops. On that side, the land is valuable, take the cops away. Bring the cops actually because we want to protect the land. Okay, I'm here for it.
you know? Um, well, it's like you said, it's a class issue, too. It's a class issue. What you said about it's protecting wealth, too. They're protecting wealth. And the they're, they're protecting, the, here's where the environmental activists are right. They're not protecting wealth that's there, though. There is no wealth there. They're creating wealth. Yeah, that's a good point. That's different. Yeah. Yeah. Because if, if you understand the belt line, you can go, if you go up, uh, if you go, number one, you need boulevard, you need boulevard, really. Not more than any boulevard. You can pass right underneath the belt line. That area, boulevard between Moreland, that's your cop city area. Yeah. That area between them two, it's becoming more fluent. Mm -hmm. But they're building wealth. Let me, let me, let me make us clear now. We're building wealth on areas that were close to red line areas and yellow line areas that had not been built out in 1937, really didn't start getting built out until the 70s and 80s. If you go and look at those houses between Boulevard and Moreland Avenue, you just need to see when they were built. Most of them were built in the, 80, in the 70s and 80s. This is the time when you had a desegregation of Atlanta legally. Where before desegregation, which was in the in the sixties, you see before the sixties, up until the sixties. Make sure we're clear about this. Is up until the Equal Housing Act, nineteen sixty-eight. Okay. Once you have desegregation, the more affluent black families said, "Hey, wait a minute, let's build a house in DeKalb County. We don't want to live in Fulton County anymore. We want to live in DeKalb County." When does that happen? Into the seventies and eighties. When does that really start going off? 80s, 90s, oh, wait a minute, housing boom, oh, wait a minute, subprime mortgage crisis, oh, wait a minute, foreclosure, oh, wait a minute, the Great Recession. And Atlanta went through two. They recovered, and then they went back again, and they recovered. So their, their recession really lasts 2008 to really 2010, a little bit later than 2010. Mm -hmm. And during this time period, do you understand this? 2008, if you had a house in 2008, you but I hope you had a good job. Or you, because you lost your house. If you had like a mid-tier job, you just got in it, you probably lost it. Yeah. Right? If you were able to buy at that time, though, oh, your equity is good. Because you bought at a very low period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is when Edgewood and Kirkwood were being built out. And you made a lot of money in equity. And you're now, what, building onto your house. You're taking the extra money and buying property here, starting a new business, so on and so forth. And you still can pay it because now you're not 25 years old and just out of college. Now you're 35 and you have stability and you have kids and you have three cars and a really big a backyard. And the house is nice. And the furniture got changed over three years ago. Right. And you're sitting on that land like, I really would like neighbors who I trust around me. You do that enough times and that's what you see. That picture I just saw, mm -hmm. you get an area that's predominantly white. Yeah, because when I first moved here, I'm right now I'm right in Decatur Square, but when I first moved here, I was in Oakhurst. Mm. I mean, they're, they're yeah, just yeah. Decatur. I mean, it's just yeah. a neighborhood of Decatur, but a lot of people would be like, oh yeah, this this area changed a long time ago. and I mean, a lot of like coded language too. Yeah. Um, but so it was really clear to me, and so is Decatur too. Um, but this is really interesting to learn about those the changes or how it happens. But you know, but this is it's coded language. But I'm gonna tell you, it's coded language that becomes stigma, stigma and stereotype. The city of Decatur was always a good place to be. Mm. <laughs> in the red line, in the maps and Hulk, it was blue. It wasn't green. It was blue. Now, what they say when they say changes, they mean really outside of what was incorporated city of Decatur. The rest of Decatur, yeah, you know. So city of Decatur has, before it was like up to, um, let's say on Camera Road, going south from the courthouse, it was, you know, really stopped at the Cab Avenue. Mm -hmm. Then they went a little bit further down, there was a light there they put. Now they're always, city of Decatur, incorporate all the way down to, um, to Memorial Drive. What? That, there's a period between Memorial Drive and there's a light that's south of Agnes Scott that was an area that was not that exciting. Mm -hmm. And you can still find homes there that are, you can flip them very easily. Mm -hmm. The land is more expensive now. 
Um, but you can find a two hundred thousand dollar. Well, at least when I was looking out, you could find two hundred thousand dollar, but it was complete. You had to you had to tear it down. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was yeah, probably yeah. a flooded basement, some somehow yeah. like that. Now, and what they're really referring to is Kirkwood, and I understand that. I used to play. Uh, I used to get my hair done in Kirkwood, get my braids done, and there was a basketball court, and often there was shooting, and they had this. But they had this great place for cake. It was carrot cake was the best. That place does not exist at all. You will see no vestiges of it. Mm-hmm. Um, around there, there is a, a apartment community that first was a mixed residence, and now it's just a lot of very expensive things. Yeah. Um, and now there's really nice restaurants there. I mean, you know, what kind of you know, not the midtown restaurants, just like the nice food. You know, um, what what they call the artisan, the artisan movie. Yeah, you know, it's nice and good stuff. Mm-hmm. That was not there when I was getting my hair braided. Guaranteed. Mm-hmm. But Kirkwood is actually quite large. And what was probably even worse was Edgewood, was Cabbage Town. And that's really what they're referring to. But it's, I okay. swear, I tell you, it ends up being stereotyped. When I grew up, when I was a teenager, I was a teenager in the late 90s. I went to those places and I was not scared. They weren't the projects. The projects really were, and Atlanta had some of the earliest projects, uh, uh, kind of, complexes, they were in the city of Atlanta, right? The city of Atlanta. There's no Kirkwood, there's no Kirkwood, Georgia. Kirkwood, Georgia is really just Decatur, Georgia. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But the neighbor is Kirkwood, which yeah. then allows people to dissociate themselves from what really was Atlanta, Southwest Atlanta moving east. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's what happened after, after the Equal Housing Act gets implemented. People with money, like my dad, straight up, you know, his money was $4,400 and his time was invaluable. He works for the state of Georgia. Okay, he took his money and he built a house. That kept happening to what we now have is the black mecca, mm-hmm. which is black, we have five different black middle classes. And it, and I can generally, it's a, it's a combination between where you live and what your profession, how you make your money. Not how much money, it's how you make your money. That didn't tell me which which what kind of black middle class you are. What is the black, I've heard that once before, what is the black Mecca referred to? So it has two roots. Number one, it generally refers to the fact that Atlanta has been a beacon of hope for black people from all over the world. Um, you also have a bit of a narrative around uh, Muhammad Ali, who lived in Atlanta, in the, in the suburbs of Atlanta. And there's some picking up on that as well, okay. just a little bit. It's, it's dealing with, on some hand, this is a place to go as a young kid. You go, back then we used to, oh man, too much. Um, Freaknik, we used to call it Freaknik. It was, on, it was one weekend in the summer, everybody come in and they hang out in the cars, dance in all over the streets. They finally banned it because it was too much. It was too much. Even I, I'm like, it's too much. You know, y'all are basically naked in the streets, but it was black people, it was black kids, you know, but you had to be 18 years old. So I was 17 when they stayed. So I was like, dang it, I miss Freaknik. There's a book, there's a book out right now called From Freaknik to Pastor or something like that. And it's like all the Freaknik kids, a generation that became church folks, right? But that's what it is, is that time, you know, Atlanta really is actually, people don't think about it, it's kind of like Boston. There's, this is a transition stage for young folks. Mm-hmm. They come in to go to school. Even folks who, who go to school in UGA, they probably come back, come to land when they're finished. You have your Emory's, you have your Agnes Scott, you have your HBCU, you have your Georgia State. So there's a lot of young people inside of Atlanta, and a lot of them don't leave. So they come here from all over the world. Mm-hmm. They come here from all the United States, and they really like being around other black people. Mm-hmm. And the reality, it is true. I spent 13 years away from Atlanta. There is no place like Atlanta when it comes to black people. Oh, yeah? No, it doesn't exist. People like to say D.C. I'm like, y'all ain't got nothing on us, though. And I, I'm from Atlanta, so I'm from, we call it from the A. So I can understand that <laughs> I'm biased. But this is true. The reason why it's true is because we go everywhere. Black, the black middle class doesn't have you only in this. And I think this is true about Maryland and the D.C. area. They got, they got a, that buoy to D.C., they got that spot. But if you go to other places, Gaithersville, you know, Annapolis, not that much, right? You're going to see more. And I would say in Maryland, they're more, they're probably on average more affluent. But here, you will see all the black people everywhere at any time. Anyone can show up at Linux, which is not always a good thing. You can go to a very expensive restaurant, extremely expensive. And you have people who really look poor and people who look really rich and people who have cultures that you're like, 
do you really belong in this neighborhood in this in in, in this fancy place? That's Atlanta, cause they all have money. <laughs> you can look how you as a black person you can have, you can assume any cultural representation of yourself that you want, and you can walk into any neighborhood that you want because you have money. That's the black middle class. In most places, black people live in a part of town, and black middle class folks are scattered in places that are mostly white. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're white and other. So there's like a little mix. But the part of where there's a lot of black folks, not very good. I'll give you a small example, and it's like kind of sad, honestly. The neighborhood where George Floyd was killed is not a black neighborhood. Most people do not know that. It's a white Catholic neighborhood. And if you walk, if I, I went there and yeah, I've been there. I, I was shocked. Now, here's the thing they, they tried. There's a, a black owned business. There is. There's two, there were two black owned businesses. One, they hold it on, it's like a coffee shop, they hold on. But the neighborhood itself is not black. If you go 10 blocks south of, uh, and I write about this in a paper called All It Takes Is One Block, I write about this 10, 10 blocks south of where George Floyd was killed. There's a neighborhood called 42, 42nd in Chicago. Same Chicago Ave, not killing people. Very affluent. Very affluent. That corner that you have is a south uh, east corner is a, I, I, this actually a blue, blue uh, rated neighborhood, but it was, it had restricted covenants on every building. And from that corner south, eventually you get to a river, everything is, has a restrictive covenant. And in a restrictive covenant, you buy it in one year, they had a 50 year lease on it. You will not sell, you will not sell lease or rent to uh, someone who is Negro. Or, or just straight up, only someone who's got Caucasian or Aryan race. They, they actually put this. Hmm. Um, this is uh, the University of Minneapolis um, has the, uh, all the records. The black community in uh, Minneapolis is way far from there. But that's not what people tend to believe when they hear about George Floyd. It's a, yeah, I actually recently went there because I have two sisters that live in Minneapolis. And I went to George Floyd Square. Like, yeah. So is it? It's a working class neighborhood, though. It's not affluent right there, right? In that neighborhood, like, is right working. That the, it's actually is actually liberal, and it's. I don't think it's okay. The square, but that square is a zone now. I mean, they've stayed. I mean, that's a, that's true. Right? That it's two by two like, block is a. It, even what you see is art. Is art. Is. Yeah, it's like a memorial. It's, it's like a memorial. It's stuck in time and place. One of the questions I want to ask you, it's a little bit shifting, but I did, well, are you teaching, you teach, you have students, yeah? Yeah. As someone who is an educator, and and then I teach in the SPARK program, which we're, we train teachers, and, and a lot of, all of us on Indigo Radio are teachers, I am wondering, like, what... What do you see with like your your students right now with like what they're concerned about? I feel like we're living in sort of very volatile and dangerous times and that could be said by different communities that it's been like that for a long time. But I'm curious like what what do you see your students like where they're at and how you as a teacher go about an educator? I always have to remember that it's 2023. I always have to remind myself it's 2023, it's 2020. Oh, they don't know that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to explain this because they don't know. They don't know 9-11. Mm-hmm. A big part of what we see now with policing becomes crystallized with 9-11 and the militarization of transportation, of any kind of logistics. And I, it is a resocialization. It's the resocialization of young men back into the war mentality. Because there is generation where we, they had to go. That generation has its, you know, they're in their 70s now. They have a mindset of protect the nation. But there's a little bit of a gap there where people are like, this is not right. So you have the Korean, you have the Korean War, you have Vietnam, where those kids came back, those young men came back, and they were like, this doesn't make sense. We over here beating up all these people, killing all these people, we come back home and we getting killed, we beat up all these people. It doesn't change. 
who are we really saving? That's not this generation. These kids, they actually believe in this, the United States. They believe that the world can change. They don't know what to do. I'm a mess. It's 38 Chicago, 10 block down, it's 48 Chicago. Um, but I will tell you, that the thing is that there is a, and I, but this is why I say, I say things in the way I do for a reason. At the, at the corner of this 10 blocks is a 48, it's 4801, it's Wings Financial Credit Union. So when I tell them Wings Financial Credit Union, they get that. They understand it. They're like, oh, the bank. My mom was in a credit union. Oh, this one. They understand the bank. George Floyd Square, they, it's, a, it's almost a caricature to them. So there are some, you, in this generation, you have to make it relevant to them, primarily because they rely on visual stimuli. So if their visual stimuli is a George Floyd Square, and their, 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 their visual stimuli is a bank, and then you put that on Snapchat and you mess around with it a lot, they can understand that. If I tell you, you know what, you should read about 9-11, it doesn't mean anything to them. Even though we actually observe the holiday now, right? Right. So I think that's a challenge for educators is how, and we did not learn that. My generation did not learn about how to use visual stimuli as a learning tool. You have to actually learn that. And matter of fact, what I would say, the best thing you can do with raising future educators is teach them how to use digital material to tell stories. Memes are not enough. Funny, okay. But at some point in time, we're talking about serious things. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to use that like we use it with the, the black face with Halloween. We ain't doing all that. Mm -hmm. So I like infographics. I like um, short pieces into document, like documentary pieces. And I understand, they need to understand content creating, creating and digital interpretation. People don't understand, like we used to have um, our verbal scores were reading comprehension. Mm, they need visual comprehension now. They don't understand what they're seeing. Peer-reviewed stuff, scientific studies, to them is just Google. So you have to teach them how to look at what they're seeing as actually, is it real or is it not real? Not fake. Don't do the fake thing. That's not right. There's too much political on there. Mm. Can you comprehend something as real, not real, science, not science, true or false. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that we're trained to use when, it, when, when we're creating visual content. Visual content is always representation of our mind. It is the movies. It is not real and not real. Only a documentary is real and then you have to question, well, why did they look at that one and not that one? So I think that's the challenge. Yeah. And I don't know if that's something that you can teach. I think it is something you can teach, but you can teach anything. The problem is you need a program of study for that. And I have not seen that outside of getting an art degree. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs an art degree, <laughs> at least a, a required class in the arts. Mm -hmm. You need that. I think you need it now because yeah. you need to know when are we making things up and how are we making it up? Mm -hmm. And why do you choose this lens and not the other lens? Yeah. Yeah. But they don't know that yet. And here, uh, at, at Emory, we have um, evidence-based, they call it evidence-based learning. And in the, in the classes, the best feature that I like to use is where assignments are staged. So it's really the same assignment, but you break it up into three or four different mm -hmm. pieces. And so they're looking at one lens the same way through different types of material, mm -hmm. right? Usually by the end of class, they change your mind about certain things. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, actually, I like this lens better, which mm -hmm. is fine. I love that. That's, that's learning. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you don't teach them how to see the evidence, and the difference is, it's not textbooks I'm asking them to look at. Frankly, some textbooks are lies. Oh, yeah. Right? It's peer-reviewed research. It's peer-reviewed books. Right? So peer-reviewed books are harder for people to get. And the extent to which do you, have, you have public books now that are written by scientists, you know, we have to work with that, too. But the reality is not all knowledge is free. Mm -hmm. So I would love to have, this is what the Race and Policing Project was started for, it was in 2016 with Philando Castile. Alton Sterling uh, was murdered a week later and the academics were like, 
well, we need research on this. And there wasn't a lot at that time. Hmm. My research was among few hmm. on policing, not the carceral system, not mass right. incarceration, but just policing. Police, police, people shooting, police shooting people. The work on policing at that time was, what is it to ride around in a cop car? Or what about police's health? No, I'm, you, you, you looking at me. I'm telling you what it is. That's what it was. That's so true. Yeah, it was from the perspective of the police. What about the people right. who are being policed? Yeah. Right? So now there's research now about the people who are being policed and how they look at police as a form of violence and stress. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's not police are taking care of, you know, Hannah Cooper has a great uh, book on this from Guardians. Uh, don't ask me what the name is. <laughs> Okay. Don't ask me these names. <laughs> I think it's from Helpers to Guardians because they used to keep us from crime and now they're criminals. So who keeps you from crime? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think where we're looking at now is how to get information to people that's real information. The Race and Policing Project, what it tried to do, and it does, it did it to some extent, and it it wasn't, it doesn't have the resources to do it in the way. It, should be done, which is to to reformulate these science projects uh, so that people can get access to at least the high level, the meta-analysis of it. It could be infographics. We just don't have enough enough power for it. What I got more over, this is now seven years that this was going on, is that students are really interested in working with the topic. Mm. So most recently, I've been working on a project on recording police misconduct. I put a question on a couple surveys back in 2016, um, and we just asked the question, have you ever recorded, have you ever used a uh, smartphone or cellular device to record the police, uh, to record excessive use of force or police misconduct? I have two students that were like, I have to do, I have to do this, I have to do it, this is awesome, and they loved it. Mm-hmm. And so I find that the best way for to teach students is for them to have research on the topic, but the reality is, you have to have the, the information, have research on, you have to have the data in the first place. Yeah. So we, we don't even have a criminology. I'm talking about Emory here. We don't even have a criminology department. Either. Oh, yeah? We, it was first, it was folded into sociology, then we just cut it out altogether. Oh, really? So where are you supposed to get, you got one class on criminology for the entire university? Uh-huh. It's not how it's supposed to work. No. Yeah, it's surprising. It's supposed to work, but you know, I mean, I can understand a lot of the policing stuff is actually within criminal justice studies. And that's actually, you know, uh, I think two of the cops that were involved with George Floyd had been involved uh, with a criminal justice studies type um, certificate or program at the University of Minnesota. Not our problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But again, that's why we have that because we've taken policing as a justice issue from the, perspective, from the perspective of those who are doing the policing. Wait a minute, what about all these community members, right. right? So I will tell you, I do believe this. In Bacop City, when if if the presence of these cops in not the neighborhoods of Cop City, because we already can understand yeah. that they're white, yeah. but in these surrounding neighborhoods, if this results in killing, this is a bad thing. It's going, all the things I talk about with the health problems, it can, we'll be able to control for victimization. We'll be able to control for arrest, for poverty, for all this stuff, and still see that link. That's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. What you gonna do about that? Mm-hmm. By the time the cop city is there, there's nothing to do, right? So in some sense, the question for educators is prevention, and you cannot deal with prevention unless you deal with people and teach them this other way of thinking about the problem. This is not a criminal justice problem. This is a criminal legal problem. Mm-hmm. Legal is different. Legal is, I need a lawyer. We should probably decide whether this is constitutional or not. Justice is, well, it's right or wrong. I can't assume that everything the cop does is right. But that's how the justice system is set up. When the cop says it's right, it's right. And then the community has to spend all of this time running it back. And one of the best ways you can do it right now is by digitizing what they do. Mm. Record the police. Record all the police. I've actually seen it uh, in in really more security officers and kids are like, I'm seeing what you're doing. And I'm like, yes, you should see. Because number one, it controls their behavior. They'll stop doing stuff because they're being recorded, mm-hmm. just because they're being recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's independent of whether they're a surveillance. I was just going to ask you what 
in, in all of this, I mean, you, you work on some serious issues here. And so I was wondering what gives you hope in these, in these times or around the work you do? Or I mean, I'm going to tell you, there was this one, they, they're sitting in my office this, this semester, and they're doing, they're doing cross tabs between, you know, what age you are and have you recorded the police and how much education you have and have you recorded the police and then we get into have you gotten stopped yourself and recorded the police and I, every time I add a little dimension I see their eyes like oh oh I didn't think about that and there are two things that happen I mentioned up front we're going to look at police violence recording police and health and they both looked at me like why would that matter by the time I got to demographics criminal legal contact, and then political beliefs. They were like, yep, I get it. I was like, I did my job. I have done my job. The, the student, she ate it up. And I, and I asked the question, have you, I asked this question, have you ever been stopped by the cop? No. So here's the thing. Now there's someone who's never been stopped by the cop who's seen protests all over the place. Who's heard about Cop City? Who never thought it mattered that much? Mm -hmm. But it can affect health. What does that have to do anything? And now, yeah, you're right. That's what gives me hope. And that's not something that happens every day that's going back to the problem over and over and over again and making the decision to tell the story a different way so that it makes sense to them. They're political scientists. So I had to walk them through it. Demographically got that. Criminal legal contact, they were like, well, I mean, yeah, of course, right? They're incarcerated. Well, yeah. They were asked to register to vote. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because we're if you ask someone to vote, that means you're engaged with the process. You want to change it. And these people can't vote. So you tell them what? You know, just do anything you can. Maybe you just record the police. So, yeah, I got that. It took them weeks to get that, but it, they wouldn't have understand something as simple as, I think if you believe that Black Lives Matter, it's actually true. If you believe uh, uh, that the police are effective, you're gonna have one idea about recording police conduct that is not associated with just what demographic factors you have. The other part of this, and it is true, when you record, if those, among those that record the police, two to three times more likely to be under the age of 25. Now this is a sample, it's 12.5% or so recorded the police out of 10,000 and just under 40% of them are under 25. I have a lot of hope. Because they're probably not gonna stop recording because this is, this is a generation effect. Reality is a lot of the prior generation didn't even have access to this kind of technology. Mm -hmm. These folks were born with a cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> so if they're digitizing the police now, we got to hope they're going to teach the next generation how to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I do have hope. Mm -hmm. And I do think that by allowing them to see the actual data, there's one thing to see a representation of it on the screen. There's another thing to see the actual data with numbers of people and seeing the different respondents and reading about their lives. Because you can take these rows and rows of comma-separated value tabulations and make it just one life. I think they understand that. They're not going to make it relevant to them unless they can see it, even if they haven't experienced it themselves. They haven't even seen the cops. The only cops they had seen was e EPD. Mm -hmm. And now they're here for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're here for it. I love that. You yeah, know? that's great. Yeah. I think that's actually really important, just a side note of like, because we often talk about in our, the spark stuff of like, do you have to experience something to have to have an opinion about it? And actually like, my, myself, I know that like what side I'm on. And I think it's thinking through like what the term solidarity means is part of that and I do think you have to pick a side and this... anyway thank you, you so much you have to much. pick an opinion for sure yeah it was thank my pleasure this. this was great I feel like I, I did not think it so would much. go this long and I do yeah. apologize if I took all <laughs> no, your time apologize um, all right and this again is Anna for Indigo
and want to just give another big thank you to Dr. Ali. I had a lot of fun with them uh, and learned a lot. It was just a great to sit down uh, with Dr. Sewell. So thank you so much for being on the show. And we will put in the show notes links to the Race and Policing Project so that you can see what Dr. Sewell's work is all about. And if you want to listen to part one, part one is posted on our SoundCloud and Apple iTunes. Thanks again for joining us. And we're gonna go out with Nina Simone. Then I'd say